Matthew 25. So uh, a couple weeks ago, maybe more than that, uh, I'm down in our little barn and I'm working and my two-year-old, then two-year-old son, Myron, he just loves to be with me, loves to kind of do whatever I'm doing. And he's down there. It was an early Monday morning, kind of cold. But if you have kids, you know, some kids don't like to wear clothing. <laughs> Myron's one of those. So he's just in shorts. That's it. And it's, I'm in a sweatshirt. And I try to get him to wear clothes. He doesn't want to wear them. And that's just a fight I'm not going to even do. Well, if you don't want to wear them, figure it out then, bud. You're going to figure it out at some point. But... <laughs> Um, that's not the way it is with my wife. So she comes down and she sees Myron in shorts, 50 degrees out. She's like, you got to put on a sweatshirt. So she's trying to put a sweatshirt on him and he's just not liking that. So Myron looks at my wife, his mom, and just says, mom, go away. (laughs) Yes. To which my wife replied, Myron, that is not nice. So Myron hands on his hips, mom, Please go away. (laughs) We're entering in to the section of Matthew where Jesus is going away. How's that for a segue? (laughs) And what he's going to do and what he's been doing really since the beginning of chapter 24 is he's preparing these 12 men that he has walked with for three and a half years for his departure what it's going to look like, what's coming. So in chapter 24, the last time I was here, Jesus answers these questions the disciples throw at him. And if you look at Matthew Matthew and Mark 13 and Luke, and you put the stories together, the disciples kind of squish their eschatology into one event. They thought the destruction of the temple, the return of Jesus, and the end of the age, it was just one event. Jesus stretches it out. So in Matthew 24, he first answers the question of when the temple is going to be destroyed, and he essentially says, in your generation. Right after that, you, if you remember, it's verse 29. Um, he says, my return, or excuse me, Matthew um, 36, my return, nobody knows it. So I can answer the first question, temple's going down in your generation, but... When I return, nobody knows that time. Nobody knows that hour, okay? But, but in the middle section, Jesus now takes some time and begins to walk his disciples through, here's how you live from my departure until my return. And he gives kind of four vignettes. We looked at one of them because it's in chapter 24, verse 45 where Jesus gives this parable about these two servants. One of them is wise and faithful, and it says this, it's verse 46 of chapter 24. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. The good wise servant realizes the gap may be a long time, and so he just keeps doing what he knows he's supposed to be doing staying in fellowship, abiding in the body. Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, even more as you see that day coming. The Bible says that we're to be generous people, praying, studying the scriptures, all those things. It's you just keep doing what you know you're supposed to do until 
his return. So that was his first vignette, the first kind of, here's what you do in the meantime. And what we're going to see is Jesus then gives two more parables, and then he gives, it's verse 31 of chapter 25, this is the end. So in the in-between time, I've told you the temple's going to go. I've told you no one knows when I'm coming. But in this in-between time, I'm going to give you these stories that help you live out the kingdom well. All right? So that's what we're going to hit today. And then he culminates it in saying, when I return, this is what it's going to look like. You may not know the day. You may not know the hour. But when I return, this is how it's going to look. So it's a brilliant chapter. Let's jump in. Chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven began when the king came to earth. Um, Jesus defends this in Matthew chapter 12. So in Matthew 12, verse 28, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says this, they had accused Jesus, you get your power from Satan. So Jesus begins to address this and he says this, if I have been casting out demons by the power of God, know this. The kingdom is here. Well, how did Jesus cast out demons? By the power of God. So Jesus says, I'm the king, and my kingdom began the day I arrived. So the kingdom is here. So Jesus is now saying, in the kingdom of heaven, right now, how we live in this in-between space, listen to this parable. The kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Story number two about the kingdom. Got the wise servant just keeps doing what he knows he's supposed to be doing. Now we have this parable about the 10 virgins, five wise, five foolish. And it's like this. This is all kind of a marriage thing. You can check out marriages 2,000 years ago, different than us. Uh, But here's my analogy. You ever driven to like Southern California with your family? Yeah. I call that a trip, right? A vacation is when it's just you and your spouse. When you bring the kids, it's a trip. Literally a trip. So what are you kids constantly saying? Yes. How much longer are we there yet? Ah, right? That's this parable. The kingdom is going to be, are we there yet, right? It's longer than you 
ever expect. So these foolish bridesmaids, they thought it was easy. And there are, I think, I see four things in this story that gives us guidance on living right here, right now in the kingdom. Number one, here's their mistake. Number one, it's verse three. They skimped it. So it says, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. Their first mistake, the reason they are foolish is because they skimped on it. When it comes to the kingdom, they skimped. Now, some people say the oil here represents the Holy Spirit, and you can make a case for that. But I think the fact that it says, go and buy some more, says it's not the Holy Spirit, because you can't buy the Holy Spirit. In fact, Peter, in Acts chapter 8, addresses this guy named Simon, who was a magician, who wanted to try to purchase the Holy Spirit, and he just rails on him. You cannot purchase the Holy Spirit. All right? So I don't think that. You can make a case, though. Here's what I believe it is. This is people that are in the kingdom or think they're in the kingdom. And the only reason why they're in the kingdom is because they want their get out of hell for free card. But they're not actually sold out to Jesus. They're not throwing in. They're not bringing everything with them. They're just doing the minimum, if you would, to get in. They're ask, they, they'll ask me questions like, hey, what can I get away with? The problem with that is this. Minimal faith will always fail you when life delays. Minimal faith is always going to fail you when life has its delays. When you don't get where you want to, when things don't work out the way you like, it will fail you. And if you ask any believer who's been a believer for a while, sanctification is a long process. It begins the moment you believe, and it ends the moment you're in Jesus's presence. It's a long process. This parable to me is one of the hardest for us in our generation because things are changing, are they not? We're now in a culture where no one wants to wait. We all want instant gratification. Give me the one step, right? I don't want five steps. I don't want long time. I want instant gratification. I was just thinking about this when it comes to books. So 12 years ago, when I started as a pastor, if I saw a book I wanted, often it meant a trip to evangel, ordering the book, and waiting two weeks to get it. Right? Sorry. Sometimes that I want bizarre books. That's the problem with me. I don't usually like like the normal. So it would be like, that's what would happen. I'm Evangel is wonderful. Order your books from them. But it's changed a little bit, hasn't it, on books? Because now you can go online, and then you've got ways you can order a book in a day. Or you get a Kindle, and they have this thing where you can download a book in one minute. And now sometimes one minute feels too long. Like, come on, really? I want to be reading this book. It's nutty. We are in a nutty time when no one has patience anymore, right? Remember dial-up? Does anyone still have dial-up? Pat Manis, retro internet right there. He's a hipster. <laughs> like it, it used to be like hours to download something. When I was in college, we had dial-up, and my roommate would download these games from France. It would take him six hours to download the game. 
Yes. And if you picked up the phone, it'd be like, and it ruined the whole download. And I just hear him yelling in his room at me. We are in a stage in history where nobody wants to take extra oil. We want it now. Yet the Bible says this, it's Isaiah 40, 31. They that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. Who does that anymore? Who really waits on God? Like this is about the best I think we do in our culture. We'll pray about something and be like, okay, God, you have till Friday at noon and then I'm taking over. <laughs> like if you don't do something by Friday, then it's just too long. I got to jump in. The example in the New Testament of patient, hopeful faith, you know who it is? It's Abraham. Read Romans 4. Read Hebrews. How long did he wait? 25 years. From 75 until 100 years of age, he had to wait on the Lord to make his promise come true. That's what this parable is talking about. Okay? So first they skimped it, and they were foolish. Number two, they faked it. Look at verse 7. Then all those virgins rose and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said, hey, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. They're faking it. They, they, they all look the same, right? But these five know their oil is running out, but they get up and they trim their lamps. They want to look just like they're in, but they really know, man, I'm running out. I don't have anything left. They're really faking it. They're not being honest. Hey, we're, we're completely out. Why am I trimming my lamp? I don't need to. But they're just going through the motions, kind of faking it. Look out when your Christianity becomes trimming lamps that have gone out. Look out for that. The Bible gives us the freedom to be super honest with Jesus. Do you know that? Everything is naked and open before him. You're not surprising him. He's like, oh my goodness, I did not know that, Matt. I'm horrified by you. Hell for you, Matt. No, we can be really, really honest. In fact, the Bible even tells us, confess your faults one to another. Why? Because sometimes you need that. Sometimes you need people to know where you're at so they can be praying for you and loving you and helping you. Be honest, don't fake it. Or it's gonna catch up to you. And we have examples of this, I think, all the time. There'll be like someone that we really admire, elder in the church, member of Rotary Club, super generous, super kind, and then he gets popped for like, adultery, or gets popped for embezzling. You're like, what happened to him? Well, my guess is at some point, there was something going wrong, and he never addressed it. And that little thing, instead of being honest about it, instead of confessing that, instead of really saying, man, something's wrong with me right now. I'm running out, because he never addressed it. It grew and grew and grew. I, I, I liken it to this. It's like, a faulty light switch in your bedroom, but you never talk about it until it burns down your house. But if you would have just dealt with the faulty light switch, man, your house would have never burned down. Be honest. Don't be like these people, trimming oil lamps that have completely gone out. Number three, they try to borrow it. Give us some of your oil. They all have lamps but only some of them work. 
Lamps do not work without oil. Now, this is a different kind of analogy, so I'll bring it into the 21st century. It's like a car without gas. What good is a car without gas? I don't care what car you have. If it has no gas, it's worthless, right? A Lamborghini, a Ferrari, whatever it is, if it doesn't have gas and your wife is in labor, I'd rather have a Yugo with gas because a Ferrari without gas when your wife is in labor is not helpful. That's the analogy. This is not helpful. And what these guys say is right. You got to go get your own. In the Christian life, you cannot live off the fumes of someone else. Whether it's your parents, whether it's your friends, whether it's your pastor, whether it's your mentor, you can't live off the fumes of someone else's faith. At some point, you have to have your own faith because God has no grandchildren. He just has kids. And as a parent, there's a hard transition where you have to allow your kids to get their own faith. And sometimes that's rocky. Sometimes that's like, oh, but you can't. You got to let them get their own faith and start seeing Jesus work in their life. I think my job as a parent is this. I keep stacking kindling around the soul of my kids, praying that one day God's spirit ignites it and they get on fire for Jesus. So my job is just kindling stories, verses, testimonies, reminding them of how good Jesus is. That one day I just pray, by your spirit, ignite this kindling in the heart of my kids and make it their own. But these guys were trying to borrow it, and here's what happens to them. Verse 12, they missed it. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But listen to what the master says. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. There's a point where it's too late. We don't have weddings like this, but we know this same scenario. There's a point where it's too late. You try to get on an airplane too late, they won't let you. It's just too late. Hey, you're too late. You can't get on this airplane. It's too late. I lived in Vanuatu. Um, I missed a lot of planes in Vanuatu because they have a different time schedule than the first world. And so they, you'd get a taxi and say, hey, I need you to pick me up at 10. They'd come at noon. And that what they would say to you is this, it's Vanuatu time, baby. I'm like, but the airport is on first world time. So you might be on Vanuatu time, but I just missed my airplane. So there's a time when we know it's too late. That's what this master is saying. It's too late. And what's the reason he will not open for these other five? I don't know you. Does that ring a bell in your mind? Because Jesus said this in his very first message, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew chapter seven. He says this, many will come to me in that day and they'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these great things for you? Cast out demons, prophesy. And Jesus says, I'm gonna reply to them, depart from me, I do not know you. It's a relational thing. I don't know you. You never had a relationship with me. I don't know you. I think it's like this, the minimalist thing. It'd be like this. It'd be like me doing this to my wife. Hey, woman, what do I need to do to stay married to you? What's the bare minimum, okay? I'll sleep in the house with you. Um, I'll pay half the bills. I'll pick up my towel. I'll mow the lawn if you buy me a zero-turn riding lawnmower. Um, Is that it? 
If I do that, I'll be good. What marriage would work like that? And yet, how often do we treat Jesus like that? Okay, what's the minimum I can do here? Can I go to the bar and have one drink? Can I go to the bar and have two drinks? Can I go to the bar and have three drinks? If my blood alcohol level is under 0.08, am I okay? Right? That's minimalist questions. That's not bringing your oil. I think much better questions are, Jesus, what's going to give me more of you? Jesus, what is going to build your kingdom? Jesus, what's going to transform my heart to be like yours? Because that's ultimately what every person wants. Because in Jesus is life. And that life is a light to all people. Don't ask minimalist questions. That's what these foolish virgins did. What's the minimum I need to get? And it wasn't enough. Ask maximizing questions. What's going to give me more of Jesus? What's going to build his kingdom? What's going to enable me to be transformed into the same image? Those are good questions. That's the first, if you would, parable in chapter 25 that tells us how you live in the in-between. The second one, the parable of the talents, we did on Sunday. If you were here, great. If you weren't, you can get it. To me, it is fundamental to knowing what it means to partner with God in the in-between. And so I think the number one message of this one is what you believe about God, you will be living out in your life. If you're like the wicked, lazy servant, and you believe God's a hard guy reaping where he is not sown, then your life is going to reflect that. If you're like the other guys that believe, man, he's a good, generous God, then you will live that as well. I've been doing counseling with the guy for a while. And he, believer, now kind of claims he's an atheist, kind of goes back and forth on that. Um, He says, well, I'm an atheist, but then when I think about God, I get mad at him (laughs) and I hate him. It's reflected in his life. I just see it. And my heart breaks because he's a good man. But what he believes about God is now being lived out and it's hurtful. And I left one question And it's verses 29 and 30. I'll read them. And it's the question about hell. So this wicked and slothful servant has his talent taken away. It's given to the man with 10. And then this happens. Verse 20, I'll go back to that. So take the talent from him. He's the guy that has hid his talent. And give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Jesus quotes that verse from Isaiah five times, over and over. Hugely important verse. Verse 30. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Does this servant end up in hell? it appears that he goes somewhere that very much reflects hell. So the question then is, is he a believer? Is this servant a believer? I do not think so. Because he does not believe the right things about God, right? He has the wrong picture of God. He believes in somebody that's not God. But I believe this that God gives to every single living person talents. 
abilities, gifts. I believe that because every person is born in the image of God. I believe that because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, he says, God makes the sun rise on the just and the unjust and sends his rain on the wicked and the good alike. God gives gifts to people. One of my favorite atheists is a guy named Chris Hitchens. He's now dead, but incredible. I would watch him and read his books because he was so witty, so smart, so brilliant. Not a believer, but gifted and given talents. So this wicked servant believes the wrong things about God and ends up being cast out. And it almost appears, if you read this story, that we earn our salvation when you look at these talents. That's not what's being said, though. There are two things that I think it's always very important to keep in mind about what's being spoken about in Scripture. There's justification and there's sanctification. Justification is this. It's my right standing with my Heavenly Father. I, you, we are all justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not of works that any man should boast. You and I, our right standing before God is a free gift from Jesus Christ. That's justification. But then there's this other thing called sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which we become more like Jesus. And that's a partnership, all right? So you can read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verse 23. I'll read it for you. It's a really great verse on sanctification. Should give you hope. It does to me. It says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That's a fabulous, fabulous text. Here's what it means. If you're justified, you will be sanctified. That they're linked together. When you become one of God's kids, he is going to be faithful to walk with you and woo you and talk with you and press you into sanctification. They go together, right? It's like a horse and a carriage. They're linked together. It's like the ducks and winning. It's like the beavers and building dams, right? They are linked together, these two things. And I take great hope in God's faithfulness. It's like a baby growing up. That's really the way Peter talks about sanctification, that we're like babies that grow up. Well, Matt, then if I'm saved and if I'm going to be sanctified and if I'm going to rule and reign with Jesus, then why don't I just kick back and do nothing? If that's my attitude, I'm going to be careful if I'm really saved. Because here's my analogy of that. When I was growing up, My mom loved to watch ice skating at the Winter Olympics. I hated it, but guess what I watched a lot of? Ice skating in the Winter Olympics. And there was this one, I think it was 1988, there was a skater that had done so good, and there's like an accumulation of points, you know, you get get better and better, um, that he was so good that he had completely won the event with still, he still had one event left, but he had won it. He was gold, didn't matter. So did that dude just sit in the stands and be like, you know what, doesn't matter? No way. He got out there, 
And he tried things he'd never tried before, like four quipple, triple lutzes or bat flips or whatever. Had the greatest time, big smile. Why? Because he loved to ice skate. Because he has a passion for ice skating. When God gets a hold of my heart, and when that process of sanctification begins to occur, what happens in me is, man, I can't wait to serve. I can't wait to be involved. Not because I'm being judged anymore. I already won. It's not because I'm trying to earn something. It's already been given to me. But it's my heart has been captured by Jesus, and I can't wait to serve him, which I believe is what Jesus says in his final words. Check these out. Verse 31, so here's the end. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Now you're getting the outline of chapters 24 and 25. Hey, there's going to be this event called the destruction of the temple. Big, brutal event. Then there's this in-between time where you got to keep being faithful, first story, where don't skimp it, man, jump into this thing, where use your talents, partner with me, and when I come back, this is what's going to happen. So Jesus is laying out, really in these two chapters, history. This is what's going to happen. Here's how you maintain. Here's how you live in the kingdom. So when I come back, I'm sitting on my throne. The king now, who was inaugurated 2,000 years ago, is now completed Read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 through 27, where it really talks about this, that Jesus is reigning as king, but he has not yet put all the enemies underneath his feet, but when he does, he will hand the kingdom over to his father. So here's what's happened. Jesus has completed the kingdom right here. It's done. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What was hell prepared for? Devil and the angels. People were never supposed to be destined for hell. You have to choose to say, I reject Jesus. I reject Jesus. I don't want to be around Jesus. And then you get placed in the only place where Jesus is not. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger 
and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me, then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the culmination of the kingdom. This is how it ends. Notice there's a separation. Sheep on the right. The right hand in Israel was the hand of honor. That's my left hand, by the way. (laughs) But it's your right hand. I'm mirrored. Right? Benjamin means son of my right hand. It's honor. This is the honor place. The left hand, your left hand, is a place of dishonor. It's still the same in certain cultures. In India, for instance, I've been there a number of times, you touch nothing with your left hand because um, they don't have toilet paper there. Well, I guess they do. It's their left hand. So that's what they use. So you never touch a person's left hand. And this was like on my first trip, I was there with Aaron Freilich. We'd eaten at this restaurant. On the way out, there, this big bowl of sugar-coated anise, which is kind of like this, it's a really, it's flavorful, kind of a minty thing. He just touched it with his left hand, grabbed a few, put it in his mouth. You know, we're different than them. We, we brought toilet paper. That was, a one of, that was a guaranteed I'm bringing this stuff. That owner of that shop picked up that bowl and just dumped it into the trash because that's how dishonoring it is to touch anything with your left hand. So that's the way it was back in this time. That is dishonoring. So sheep on my right hand, goats on my left hand, right? And then he says this to the people on the right. I love this verse. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Who gets to inherit kingdoms? Kings and queens, right? If, you, if I was given a kingdom, if I was given the United Kingdom, what would that make me? King Matt. Jesus is saying, from the foundation of the world, the very beginning, when I created Adam and Eve, what I wanted was joint rulers. I wanted co-regents with me. I wanted them to have dominion on the earth. They were to be my image bearer, my king, and my queen on planet earth. That was your destiny from day one, Adam and Eve. Obviously, we know where that got broken But the plan is the same. You and I, our destiny is to become kings and queens with Jesus. In fact, when we go inside, we're doing a series, and I'm calling it King Me. So you ever played checkers? If you make it all the way across the board, what happens? Kinged, queened, if you would. That's it. When we make it through this life, across the checkerboard of life, and we get to the other side, we're going to give, be given crowns, crowns of righteousness. We're going to be given crowns. We're going to be kings and queens. So we're going to talk about, like, what does that mean then? How do we live in this kingdom as 
kings and queens in training right now. So just love this. This is our destiny. We're going to inherit a kingdom. It's brilliant, right? Now, on what basis do they inherit the kingdom? Because they preached a really good sermon? No. What's the basis? How they treated the most vulnerable people around them. This is a convicting passage to me. Not the preaching, not these things. It's how are you treating those that are most vulnerable, the ones that you see, the ones that are around, how are you treating them? This convicted me when I was in India the very first time. We went there because of that big tsunami, if you remember that Christmas of 2004. It's a brutal time. So we went over there to put in some water filtration systems, which is like, I'm an engineer, so it was my wheelhouse. I was really into that. So we're in this little village, and we're putting in pumps, and we're putting in piping. We're doing all that kind of work. And as we're there, this tall, like skinny, I, I, skinny is not the right word for him. Like he would have to run around in a shower to get wet. He is that skinny. And he kind of come, and he's kind of hanging out. And he had these hands, and his fingers were weird. His, his fingernails were like barreled. They're really kind of tall. And then he would get in these coughing fits where it sounded like something was going to come out, like big, like a lung. So I'm like, dude, what's up with this guy? Well, we find out he has tuberculosis. I find that out, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. Stay away from me. So whenever he was around, I was upwind of him. When we gathered to pray for him and lay hands on him, I just extended a hand. God knows. He can help, right? I, I just was, I didn't want to touch him. There was one person in our group that was different. Her name, Maureen Wright. She was unbelievable. She was hugging him. She was giving him water. She was uh, talking with him. That kid, for the next two days, was like a puppy dog following Maureen Wright around. You know why? Because probably for years, everyone had treated him just like I did. And he hears one person saying, hey, I love you. Hey, tell me your story. Hey, what's going on? Like, like Marine Wright, unbelievable. If you don't know her, she actually donated a kidney to a friend. So when I'm around Marine Wright, I just say, I'm a goat. You're the sheep. I am the goat. <laughs> I'm going to be on the left hand. You're going to be on the right hand, right? So I, I kind of treated this guy this way. The next, like two days after that, we are leaving. And in my devotions, I read Matthew 25. I just thought, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Marine Wright got it right. Because she saw in this little skinny, tall, rail-thin, tuberculosis boy, she saw Jesus. That's what she saw. Mother Teresa, if you read about her, there's, she, she just never gave up. Do you know that? Till like dying breath, helping people, loving people, saving people. The worst of the worst in India. And one guy said, the reason why she never gave up, this guy said this, because I did something but she did it for someone. And what Mother Teresa said was this, because in every orphan, in every leprosy patient, in every dying person, I see the face of Jesus. She got that from right here. That's what helped her keep going, keep going, keep going. My prayer is that I become a lot more like Maureen Wright. I get a lot of accolades for what I do. But according to Jesus, when he talks about the end, he doesn't talk about sermon preaching. He talks about, Matt, how did you treat 
those that were most vulnerable in your life because that's what I care about. I came for the most vulnerable. I came for the sick. I came for the weak. That's who I came for, right? When I think about this, I think my wife is going to be way, way, way in front of me on this day because she gets this. She just does this. So we have right in our house right now, we have two extra kids, a three-year-old and a five-year-old. And uh, people are always like, man, that must be tough. We have nine kids in a three-bedroom home. So there are, they're just, it's like an orphanage almost. Or sometimes it feels like a refugee camp. I come home, I'm like, this feels like a refugee camp. And, and they're like, man, that must be really hard for you. I'm like, it's not, not for me at all. Like it, 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 the only thing I do, I, I, I'm like a taxi. So I should get an Uber account and just start adding in people when I drive. I just drive a lot now. But it's my wife who just shoulders this thing, shoulders this thing. I hope to see her in line. But there are moments you have with these kids where you see the face of Jesus. So one of the kids, a three-year-old, his name is Arrow Strike. How's that for a name? <laughs> Arrow Strike. I mean, it's awesome. So uh, Arrow, just, he's just a three-year-old. So we, we were doing something together, and, and he just stopped, and he looked at me, and he calls me dad sometimes. He said, Dad? I said, what, bud? He said, I like you. <laughs> I'll tell you what. That's more, that meant more to me than any sermon I've ever preached. Here's this kid. I know his backstory. Not a happy backstory. And here, because of my wife's generosity and her kindness and her givingness, he's able to be in a place that's safe and warm and needs are met. She's going to be way, way up there. How are you doing with those that are vulnerable around you? Are we judgmental? We often don't know their backstory, and yet we judge them so quickly. We don't know what's happened to them. How are we with those that are in prison, that are naked, that are sick? How are we with old people? Like old people now are just like, Put away. There's this great story in the New York Times about how if you will visit an old person, how it transforms their life. But when they're just warehoused in these places, they just die because we are meant for relationship. How are we with the most vulnerable people? And you guys are stellar. Like our safe families thing, we have more safe families than the need is right now. So pray for favor in the schools as they've started back up. Pray for favors with government agencies that deal in these areas, that they'd really begin to trust us, that we can be an asset for them, that you can start sending kids to us and we'll take care of them just like this right here because in them, we're gonna see Jesus. In them, we'll see Jesus. Great, great text. And when we do it, we get kinged. I think we get kinged right here. When Arrow said that to me, my spirit soared. I felt like I made across the checkerboard. I got kinged that day. That's what you'll find. Same thing. You get kinged. Your heart for broken people 